Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com after the 97 election were turning up in reception trying to get paid. Candidates are offering tea with Peter Mandelson. Dinner with Tim Farron goes for less money. Yes, here we go again then. It's How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. I'm still Matt Chorley and I'm still joined by new Labour mastermind Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, who's director of policy for Nick Clegg in the coalition, and Tory brain box Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, get in touch uh, with all your questions and queries and complaints. You can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Are we all well? Oh, well. Really well. So excited about Christmas. Are you? You sound yeah. weary, Matt, of being Matt Jawley, which worries me. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a grim inevitability of it that, that will continue. Uh, right, so we're not going to be weary today. We're going to have fun today because there's a sort of, there is going to be a Boxing Day special bonus episode over the Christmas break. But we thought it is the period of uh, cracker jokes and, every, you know, there's, a, there's an art to telling political jokes. And we've heard quite a lot recently, particularly from Keir Starmer. The Prime Minister spent this week arguing about an ancient relic that only a tiny minority of the British public have any interest in. Mr Speaker, that's enough about the Tory party. So, Peter, does it matter that Keir Starmer uh, tells terrible jokes? I don't think he does tell terrible jokes. He's very amusing in private. He's always been a bit subdued, on the other hand, in public, and now he's sort of coming out, as it were. So I think that's very good news for everybody. And I think that to cheer people up at PMQs and tell a few jokes and mock the Prime Minister, I mean, I, what is there not to like? Well, they have to be good, though, don't they, don't they? Me too. I mean, I, I, I've been You're responsible, so fussy. I must admit, for quite a few poor jokes. A high spot for me was when Theresa May became uh, Prime Minister. and That was a high spot? Uh, what for you personally? there was a PMQ's oh, joke. Please, mate. <laughs> <laughs> a high spot it's for you like speaking Theresa German. I've got, I've got, you know, my story's at the end of the sentence. Um, the... the uh, Theresa May told a joke in her first Prime Minister's questions, which was widely panned, and the Times decided it was going to do a 
uh, an article about how William Hague had told these excellent uh, jokes and they rang me up uh, so that I could say how excellent William Hague's jokes were by comparison with the joke she'd just told. The unfortunate thing was that I'd also written the joke she'd just told, the bad one, <laughs> as well as the what other ones. It? And Remind I had to admit, I can't, it was about trains and I cannot now remember it. A lot of joke telling, first of all, it's, got, it's about the moment that you tell it. It's about how spontaneous it seems. Uh, it's about people's reaction to you so that William Hay could tell a joke and it would work brilliantly, it would land brilliantly. Someone else would tell the same joke, it would land terribly because people weren't expecting to do it. If, you, if you're too obviously prepped for it, what might come out as a quip sounds terrible when it's prepared. Uh, that's what happened on this occasion. If you've written any jokes, uh, Rishi Sunak? <laughs> I'm not. Uh, the, the thing about joke telling is an interesting thing. And I, there's an ethical thing, I think, here, because I was thinking about this before. You know, my view is that if I ever do provide jokes to politicians, generally you speaking... You can't steal the authorship. Yeah, generally speaking, it's for them. The only time I really objected, actually, was when the Sunday Times ran a story in which a number of William Hague's jokes, which actually were ones that I'd helped him with um, were ascribed to someone else completely my view is that after about 10 years uh, with the permission of the person involved you probably can uh, <laughs> the statute you know, limitations so yeah, but at the time you really you really uh, can't they're about helping somebody to make their speeches better and um, you know uh, uh, make a point get over with and I do think they matter uh, in Prime Minister's questions it can matter a lot Polly Ed Davey funny man uh, uh, no I mean Ed <laughs> is delightful uh, kind, generous, sincere, but he's sort of so sincere. I don't know if you've noticed, he really furrows his brow when he speaks because he's just, he's painfully, painfully sincere. But the, the, I think Danny's onto something because jokes sometimes work sort of primarily because of the context. You know, politics is full of these weird contexts where jokes that are not funny can somehow work for sort of morale. That's certainly true in Prime Minister's Questions where basically it's as if everyone's taken amphetamines and is sort of like jeery, jowly, like we... like it, it, And so they will do that, the call and response thing sometimes, you know, where it's like, I don't know, police numbers up, nurses up, and you just think... I'm so painfully embarrassed, yeah. right? But somehow there it works. It sort of around. sounds like a joke. It's got all yeah. the component parts. It, I mean, but, Robin but, Cook, by the way, just on just on the point that you're making, that's absolutely right, Polly. And I remember when Robin Cook went around a tour of different places and he kept on falling out with people, we worked on a joke that for was William India and, India and Pakistan. Yes, yeah, so we worked on a joke and uh, I had the idea that we could say that he could create an ugly scene in a room by himself that was vetoed <laughs> on the grounds that it was, un, you know, it was, uh, it was mean. Uh, and so we, we had the end of the show had no punchline. Uh, and we eventually said, well, look, let's just put, uh, let don't book it, Robin Cook it. It's not funny, but that's where the punchline because goes. It, because we for, ran out of time. For younger listeners, it was Thomas Cook it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't, we ran out of time. William just had to deliver that line. <laughs> we didn't ever come up with a punchline. Okay, it brought the house down for exactly the reasons that Polly said. It was in the place where the punchline was supposed to go. People knew it was a punchline, so they laughed. Now, I would say, not yes. that you're the representative of Ed Davey, but you have worked with him before. In fact, he was your first boss. Um, I quite like his stupid stunts. The things he does, the, the can and because he does it with the air of... This That's because you worked on regional papers, right? Like thin, thin. You know, rather rather than rather than taking himself too seriously, he's realised he leans into these things and he gets in the papers if he's opening a door or setting off a cannon. You know, they're visual jokes rather than you know verbal ones. I, I think that's right. There's a sort of daytime TV vibe. 
about them. That works. But but you wouldn't call them jokes, right? Like, no. It, you just sort of uh, cringe. It's time to along. show Rishi soon at the door while opening a, a blue door. It's quite good. Well, yeah, but it's not. Burst the bubble. The um. Was it time to yeah burst the balloon burst the bubble the tall wee bubble? It's funny because you can't believe they actually. No. They actually I liked did the it. one when he drove through a, some blue hay bales in an orange digger. That was good. I must say Matt ball. is very easily pleased, <laughs> very easily amused. <laughs> um, does it Matt? Do you, does it? We'll come in a minute to the uh, the question. You know when you've been involved in these things. Does it make any difference? that, you know, serious times, we're in serious times, serious economic times, serious global times. Do you think voters want a funny... Because, you know, Rishi Sunak, you wouldn't think, oh, if we invite the Sunaks and the Starmers around, we're going to have a right laugh at dinner, necessarily. But does that matter? But that's not what the joke is for. Again, if you're talking about PMQs or you're talking about party conference, the mm. joke is to build a sense of camaraderie and loyalty amongst your in-group. And then on those rare occasions that a joke really cuts through, it is because it says something that is in line with your actual kind of electoral strategy. Um, it's also aimed for the public. You want the public to nod along. Through, but you most want the man don't. and woman, the informed man and woman in the pub to hear it and nod along and say, my God, he got that right. Mm. You know, but, but, but it's, because it's, it's not just for your own side. No, no, but that's, it's those cut-through jokes, right? It's because they are essentially a memorable soundbite and they're more memorable because they're... They're witty, like, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, like Cameron saying to Blair, you know, he was the future once. It's not rolling in the aisles funny, but it it it's lands on the message. It's important also that it's mocking and not insulting. Yeah. And you want to deride your opponent. You don't want to rubbish your opponent because the man and woman in the pub won't like it. And they that's won't nod along. You, you, want it, you want it also to demonstrate that the person that's telling it is witty, sharp, intelligent, confident, incisive, yeah. confident. There, there's, Nick, Richard Nixon is famous. Famously supposed to have said uh, to to Ted Sorensen, who uh, was uh, Nick, you know, uh, Kennedy's advisor, that he was really jealous of Kennedy's inaugural speech, which Sorensen had written. So Sorensen said to him, uh, "You mean the bit? Ask not." you know, what you can do for your country. And he and uh, Nixon says, no, no, not that bit. The bit where he said, I do solemnly swear. Right? <laughs> very funny uh, joke. Anyway, this was ascribed to Nixon, very witty Nixon. Odd, because Nixon really wasn't witty. Anyway, it turned out years later that Sorensen had just made that joke up. Uh, Nixon hadn't said anything of the sort, and he regretted it, because it made Nixon look like he was, in fact, very funny. But in fact, Nixon, one of yeah, the characteristics yeah. of Nixon, he really wasn't. Um, so I... I the one of the reasons you do it is to demonstrate the person is, you know, got a really sharp sense of humour. But it can go wrong if they haven't and it looks terrible or if the jokes are, are terrible themselves. I remember going to a party conference. You'll all have had this experience of people providing jokes from outside. I don't know whether you've had this, body, but I once was given a long list of jokes by Ken Dodd. <laughs> to, uh, for William Hague's speech, they were all absolutely t the ones that weren't terrible because they were, you know, obviously he's very funny. Were just unusable politically because they were, you know, they, they made jokes that politician couldn't. But actually they all just use. diddy me not and all that <laughs> business. Were. And I, I'd, Sebco agreed that he would go back to Ken Dodd and tell him that we couldn't use any of them. I didn't actually have to do that. God, but. it's amazing because when you because the other week we we had Mike back from the Wombles and it's extraordinary when you think this is the, uh, you know going into the turn of the, the millennium. Tories, so they the tourists had um the Tories have had you know Shirley Bassey Jimmy Tarbuck at the time certainly I believe you know um kind of Mike Reed Mike well that sort yeah. of uh comedian and, and let's bomb 
Russia. Oh, Kenny yeah, Everett. Kenny Whereas Everett. the Labour Party had sort of Billy Bragg, Paul Weller. It was like much yeah. cooler, but with smaller audiences, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> smaller, I think, is generous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about what, what about the Liberal Democrats. Did the Liberal Democrats have, or the, or the, I suppose the Women's Equality Party did? Well, yeah, that had Sandy Toxvig. But actually, the reason I had Sandy Toxvig's email address was because she had, on one occasion, provided Nick Clegg with a joke of, of some sort, along with some of the sort of behind-the-scenes news quiz type people. And and you would also get lots of very peculiar people writing in with really quite lengthy jokes. And, and, and you know, most of them are terrible, but as I say, most of the time, especially for a party conference speech, it doesn't really matter because you've just... You've got to have something to add, add the light to the shade of the conference speech or it's boring. Uh, much better if you can come up with a funny joke... But, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you can It's can't. also good for morale as well. And that's important. So in a minute, I want to ask about when you've written jokes, which have worked well, uh, jokes that have landed politically, because they seem to be the ones that we're, uh, we're, we're talking about. And, and what's it like when somebody else gives you a joke to deliver and you have to try and uh, make it work? We will do that next on How to Win an Election. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is How to Win an Election with me, Matt Chorley, joined by political masterminds Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. We're talking political jokes this week because politicians across the country will be sitting down and putting their crackers and hoping to find some good material uh, for the new year. Danny, let's start with you because before we launched How to Win an Election, we did film some little videos and, and asked what your party tricks all were. Um, and you said your party trick was you were sort of dial a joke. Yes. That people would call you up and just say, I'm, I'm speaking at the Scottish Whittlers Society and I need I've to honestly land a message sat, about trains. Give us some jokes. I've honestly, I've sat in a, in, a, in a motorway service station and a phone went off and it was the current prime minister at the time. And my wife was sort of quite impressed that the current prime minister drunk. I answered the phone and it was, she just wanted a joke uh, for uh, the speech that he had to give in half an hour. And uh, my wife was less impressed by that. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, it's like it's a facility I'm somewhat embarrassed by, the ability to come up with a pun or a line for a speech if, I, uh, if they haven't... Um, got one um just uh, in the problem with these things they're always um quite lame when you repeat them without context but um as an example when ken livingston uh and frank dobson were both um running for the mayor of uh london and, and tony blair was juggling between them i came up with the idea that he should have two mayors which is he could have um he could have frank 
Dobson during the day and Ken Livingston could be his nightmare. Right, and that That's well. hilarious. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, now, the thing, the thing that's interesting about it is, objectively, to live it like that, it isn't hilarious, obviously. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. But, <laughs> but at the time in the Cascoms, it, it really, really worked. And I knew it would as well. So it's all about, a lot of this is about context. And so almost all these political jokes are like, really lame when you're you know they're not uh, they're not anyway not. I'm not one to laugh I've never written a joke in my life it's a major deficiency what about the 87 manifesto that was hey. thank you very much <laughs> well better than the longest suicide note That's which was 83's jokes can be so valuable at uh, showing resilience when something bad has happened right because the idea that you can make light of it yeah uh, makes you look much stronger and therefore actually it means that you're much safer from from whatever it is one of the jokes that really sticks in my mind was when uh, Cherie Blair had been overheard sort of bad mouthing Gordon Brown around the Labour conference hall yeah uh, and Blair's speech the next day he started off by saying well at least I um don't have to worry that she'll run off with the guy next door yeah and the house down and it's immediately sort of calmed and diffused the tension between him and Gordon. Exactly. Uh, The point is, it hasn't got to me. So you don't need to talk about it anymore. And it actually takes all of, uh, well, not all of the sting, but a lot of the sting out of a controversy and means you can move on. Buys space for your actual sort of political message. Actually, Keir was quite good at the drinks he gave for the lobby hacks last week. And he said in 2017, the Daily Mail were describing him as weak and floundering. And now he's pleased to report that they're now just describing him as floundering. <laughs> that's Do real that, progress from the Daily Mail. By the way, he also what, t- he also told a joke saying that he's got really big, ambitious plans for 2024, and he's looking forward to reading about them in Patrick McGuire's column in the Times, uh, <laughs> along with everyone else, which is also very nice. Yeah, I mean, I, but the, the good, that joke earlier, everyone laughed. That is the test. By the way, yeah. if you're preparing a joke for a speech, do people laugh? Not do they sit there and go objectively? I think that's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually do they do they he's laugh the, at that? Do they laugh spontaneously? Adlai Stevenson had those couple of great one, uh, ones when uh, the the American Democrat who lost president one was after he lost saying uh, he started his speech with a funny thing happened to me on the way to the White House which was a pretty good uh, joke but the other time was when someone said to him uh, every intelligent person in the country is going to vote for you and he replied that's not enough madam I need a majority <laughs> I thought was as Michael joke. Heseltine was also very good at these jokes you know his standard conference repartee and stage conference speech you know would, would contain all sorts of barbs I always remember in the lead up to the 1997 election when Gordon Brown was sort of setting himself out as this great sort of erudite sort of super economist and statesman and uh, Ed Balls who was advising him at the time uh, had written out a long sort of essay uh, about endogenous economic uh, growth, which Michael promptly attributed uh, to Gordon and said, well, it's not brown, it's balls. Uh, and that brought the house down. So what's, but I suppose, I think what we were sort of groping towards is the fact that they work when there's an element of political truth and attack in it. it yes. that actually, just a sort of funny pun is not enough. That yeah. actually it needs to, so what some of the ones that I was thinking of was, it's not brown, it's balls. Um, Vince Cable... Uh, did all of his best thinking in the bath, I understand. <laughs> and which you can read about in, in a book, Plains, Trades and Taller Doors. It's one of the my 50 places. Which That's a politics. really great book, really actually. Good. I bought a lot for Christmas with people. So, and he was in the bath when he came up with the line about, we've all seen 
Gordon Brown's transformation from Stalin to Mr Bean. Now, yeah. part of the re- it's not that funny. I still don't actually get it. Well, well he used I, to be a clunking fist, and now he's like a uh, inept Wally. That's the. Well, it's mean, as, yeah, it's but... as he went downhill from two thousand and seven to two thousand and eight. The summer was great, and then everything went wrong, and he so he'd gone from sort of iron fist to. But just, apparently a move, a move from being a crumpled. complete mass murderer to being a silent comedy mime was up that downhill. <laughs> it's a degrade, apparently. But uh, it's not a very good. On paper, it's not a very good joke because it doesn't. It's not like it, it doesn't rhyme. It's not like from Mister Stalin to Mister B. You know, there's no. But I think it rings true because it's the sort of thing that Vince Cable would say. He did come up with it himself. It's not like yep. his fall from uh, Bruno Brooks to, you know, using things that he wouldn't know about. And and it was so unexpected. So Vince Cable was the interim leader. Yeah. Um, and so he was just doing a little stand-in gig as the person who got to ask a couple of questions is when the Lib Dems got two questions. And nobody was anticipating that he was being any good. He wasn't even standing to be the leader. And so the idea that he might, in fact, have some sort of superstar quality just really sort of blew everyone's mind. And what's weird is he then went on to ask a really boring, forgotten question, something to do with the armed forces, which had nothing to do with that line. He just clearly thought it was a, it was a, it was a good line. He got out of the bath too soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the other one, that I, just because I, it, 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 I think it might be the best sort of comedy routine, because I didn't see William Hague in the flesh during the Smashbox. The the first PMQs after it was revealed that Ed Miliband had got two kitchens, David Cameron just went to... T- they'd obviously had... Maybe Daddy, you wrote some of them. They, obviously, everyone had got a two kitchens joke, and he did all of them. I think I did provide him one. I can't remember now um, what it and was. And by far my favourite was he was like, everyone was like falling about laughing. He said, no, 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 come on, come on, come on, calm down. I feel I feel sorry for uh, the right honourable gentleman. You know, at the end of the day, he just doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. Which <laughs> 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 is such a brilliant mine. joke. It's such a brilliant joke. I mean, it, ultimately, it doesn't make any difference to uh, but it might have been one of those weeks where the government was in trouble and there's no way that Ed Miliband can can mess Look, this up. And actually, just telling a load of jokes is good deflection. It certainly was important to William Hague to be able to, when he when he was leader, to be able to keep the backbenchers on side at a time when the party, and keep the morale of the party up when people were behind you. And uh, where, where, when he was, when he was, the people are behind you in the Commons and they're not very uh, impressed by your leadership <laughs> in, in other ways. And it just keeps the morale up and it is a time where you can take it to the other side. So it did matter. And he did, William Hague... Sp- Rory Bremner had this, he said, on Wednesday mornings, I get together with my team uh, and we think where the country's going. And William Hague's team gets together and sees whether he can devise a joke. And, there was something, <laughs> and that was something true to it, which it was. This, this is a very important uh, um, case from history because William Hague came every week and pummeled Blair at PMQs with his jokes. And Blair just couldn't get on top of the thing at all. And there was a big brainstorming session in number 10, well recorded. David Miliband said to Tony, look, for goodness sake, don't don't go into PMQs like you're sort of sitting an exam and you've got to cram every fact into it. You just wanted to have us some one-liners and some put-downs and Alistair Campbell provided a whole shed load, none of which Tony really liked. They weren't quite uh, him. What Tony used to do with each of these Tory leaders was find 
an argument against them with, with which he could just sort of sum up their whole performance. With John Major, it was uh, weakness. I lead my party. You follow yours, if you remember. Mm. And that seemed to sort of capture the whole essence of what Major was going through. With William Hague, what he got to after a lot of thought and observation was uh, that the right honourable gentleman is better at jokes than judgment. So he turned his jokes Turn, against yeah, him. Exactly. And every time William Hay came up with something dumb, he just would say the same. He's better at jokes uh, than uh, uh, judgment. William, uh, no, Michael Howard was opportunism. That's the sort of lens that Tony created to uh, uh, to uh, to attack him. There was one other Tory leader I can't remember. Oh yes, IDS. You didn't really <laughs> sorry. You didn't didn't you really you didn't really need any attack lines on IDS because they were supplied by his own side. The one jo- now the one joke I thought actually has had unintentionally long running consequences is the joke that Liam Byrne left when he left that was the treasury. Not funny. There's uh, sorry. There's no money. Yeah, very funny. But very, he left very it droll. He left it as a joke, and it's still a problem now. Yeah, and you've got to just to demonstrate, by the way, you've got to be extremely careful of things that you leave in quotation marks. I mean, anyone who's been on Twitter and has tried to make some joke which they don't explain the context of knows that everyone then takes it incredibly yeah. seriously. <laughs> exactly. and that, so it's very important, not, you know, not to do that. The other thing that you don't want to do, and William Hague was was, you know, very sort of firm about this is tell disastrous jokes that people don't laugh at. If, you, if you've if you got any question, I mean, anyone who's been to the Conservative Party conference, I remember once John Redwood making a joke about Ian McCartney, and the joke was, step <laughs> forward, Ian McCartney, and walk tall among the men. Right, so, a number of things. First of all, almost nobody in the hall knew, <laughs> who, Ian knew who Ian McCartney was. Secondly, Nor did they know how short he was. Secondly, if they did know that he, they didn't know he was short. If they knew he was short, that is actually not very not funny. a very nice thing. It's to not say. a very nice thing yeah. to say. So I do remember. And then he he told this joke, and then he paused for people to laugh, which they obviously didn't. The hall was only half empty. Also important, by the way, that there has to be enough people there to <laughs> to laugh at it. Otherwise, it's awful. And he waited for them to laugh, and didn't. And there was sort of moving a, a scraping chair in the back. <laughs> it was it was really excruciating, actually. Um, so uh, and then another, I saw another cabinet minister once say that the Labour Party had no principles and they had a shopping bag from principles the shop <laughs> and they sort of looked and they went they took the bag out and looked inside the bag and said there's oh, nothing, nothing here, here and threw it over his shoulder that was a disaster as well so sometimes you can really you've got to really make sure that you you make the joke stick and if you do then it, it, it may not change the political landscape but it you know the other thing that we're sort of undervaluing is people making speeches for if you make a speech for half an hour i don't know but i'm sure peter does this too um you you try and make sure that it's amusing and interesting in some way i mean you must you're but, saying you're not funny but i mean first of all you use you peter you use humor the whole time i use humor technique. against myself most of the time yeah yeah but, but the, Ed the conference hall thing is really interesting because it is only really during a leader's speech or possibly a boris johnson speech when he wasn't the leader that you get that packed hall and that you have the warm-up video and you have the cheering and at lib dem conference you have the buckets passed around to raise money and 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 there's a sense of the hype that you might get at it you know at some sort of like stand-up gig or something not that much but still you and there's the mood in the room that means people will laugh. laugh which if and, you're the third on in a debate on pencils it's well, not exactly so that's the thing is if you are a sort of third tier 
a shadow cabinet member or cabinet member even. And you've what you've watched is the video clip of somebody saying something a bit lame and the hall falls about with laughter. You're trying to replicate yeah, yeah. that. What you don't realise is actually what you've got is the sort of vibe of a bingo night on a Tuesday. I did actually once write some jokes to Nick Clegg um, uh, late at night in a bar. Did you uh, give them to him? Uh, I gave them to somebody who worked for him and they were all judged to be completely unusable, but quite funny. Well, I, I was the person, so I was Nick's speechwriter yeah, for I don't th- a I'm few I'm not sure years. they've got to you. I think... So, and, I think, <laughs> I think um, and I was the person desperately looking for jokes and I tended to put I in... I should have come straight to you. I put in placeholder jokes until somebody came up with something better and then half the time they were the ones that made them in and, yeah, we ended up making a joke about but, how David Cameron was a bit like Toilet Duck, which is <laughs> not my that, finest hour. You did that joke where you said you wouldn't put up tuition fees and then you waited ages for the punch. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> right, let's it's move on. It's supposed to be Christmas. Oh, come on, it's right, Christmas. Right, it's not right, quite Christmas. It's not Jewish. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll do some of the uh, emailed in questions. Listeners have been in touch. We've absolutely bulging inbox. In fact, next week we're going to do a whole load of your questions because uh, we've got so many of them. Uh, but Bev has been in touch saying, Dear Matt, Peter, Polly and Daniel, a brilliant and entertaining podcast. Who knew politics was so funny? You did. (laughs) My question is, what role do the wives, husbands, partners of political party leaders play in an election? And when has it gone wonderfully right or horribly wrong? Thanks again and Merry Christmas. Bev. So I suppose the most obvious example of this most recently was Rishi Sunak getting his wife, Akshata, up at a party conference. Which it... Did it feel a bit retro there? It was a bit odd. Always feels a a bit awkward because... You know, the fact that the person who's married to you thinks that you're quite nice is a, a bit of a low bar. I, I, I think that even though it's so often women doing this, and I feel a bit uncomfortable with that, I actually think having a spouse in that supporting role where they go out and do visits with their partner can be quite nice, especially when you're doing visits with, like, f- photos, whether it's walking on a beach or, like, meeting kids in a primary school or something. The idea of just looking a bit more human by being there as part of a married couple, can can work nicely. But you shouldn't make the spouse responsible for, like, ha- giving a speech and having political opinions because, in the end, they're not the ones standing for election. So, l- weirdly, l- there's, there's been a study, a social psychologist study this. If you phone, say, an estate agent and you're put through the receptionist, the receptionist says, I'll push you through to X. He's a real expert in exactly these properties that you're looking for or you want to sell. Uh, that works you would think it obviously wouldn't work, but in fact it does work. Third party. So, in other words, I think having the wife or spouse or you know the spouse of the leader endorsing them, it shouldn't work, but it does, and it's the reason why they have it in the United but States. State agent was... secretary isn't their wife, are Might they? Be. Might be, I suppose. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying. In other words, I'm just saying that. Even though you know yeah. that the endorsement's not coming from an independent source, yeah. the endorsement still works. The, 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 my favourite example of a spouse in an election was um, Ask, uh, Attlee's wife, Violet, who drove him round all the polling stations in, in the election and all of his speeches, and then on the day went out and voted Conservative. Yeah. <laughs> but but that was not her biggest role, uh, Danny. Her biggest role was that on the day that the election result was announced in 1945, at the Beaver Hall in Westminster was a gathering of the Parliamentary Labour Party and Labour Party bigwigs, including my grandfather, who were all plotting how to replace Attlee as the leader and the one who would go to the palace to kiss hands, at which point Vi Attlee grabbed Clem, put him in the driver's seat of her car, raced up the mall straight into Buckingham uh, (laughs) Palace, deposited Clem at the front door, who was duly 
made Prime Minister by the King, whilst all the plotters were back in the Beaver Hall <laughs> trying to decide which amongst so them would take his place. She wasn't that much of a Tory in the end. Oh, she was a, she was a, she she was was, a Tory. Yeah. She really was a Tory, yeah. but she wasn't having she wasn't her having Clem that. pushed to one side. She was going to be there with him in number 10 and no nonsense. She was very determined. Because is, is it feels to me like even the time I've been covering politics, the... the, the, the Sensitivities about this, that the the sort of the, the wife going up on stage and kissing at the end of a party conference speech, that's done less and less now. Do you think culture has changed a bit, Polly? I, I think a little bit. And, you know, there have been uh, political wives who have tried to be a. I mean, you know, Samantha Cameron tried to do a bit more of the sort of first lady ish stuff. She had a, a tiny office of her own and she tried to have something of, of an agenda of things she cared about. But it just. It always feels weird to me because, in the end, they're not the one that you elected. Yeah, I mean, yeah but, but they're not trying to take the place of the prime minister. They're not trying to be the, the prime minister. You're right. The start, going on a visit is one thing. Giving a political speech at party conferences is a different thing. Because Sarah Brown did it for it's Gordon Brown. It's not a political speech. It's a speech about uh, their husband. And I think both. Uh, Rish's wife. I know it was a bit cringy, but I think it worked. It was quite effective. And no, I think Sarah's no about Gordon life, was also very If you very were nice. having a bad time at work, would you think the solution is to get your wife in and make a speech about <laughs> how, how deep down he's actually a really good chap? Have you asked your wife? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea that I'd get her to make a speech about me. I mean, I would, yes. That's not yeah, being broadcast. It sounds rather ridiculous, special <laughs> pleading. But most of, most modern wives of prime ministers do an enormous amount of work in Number 10. They raise a lot of money for charity. They do a lot of receptions. They reach out to a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of sort of unspoken, very, very good social political work with a small p undertaken by prime ministers' wives. Uh, and I think that's how it should be. Yeah, look, there's an awful lot of work goes into trying to make people connect uh, who are who are prime ministers connect with as people yeah. uh, and it's just a way that they uh, can do that uh, it's not in my view though the difference between victory and defeat but it's helpful uh, and if if your partner's willing uh, to do that uh, then then i think it you know i think there's something to be to be said for it and actually the single best thing that a partner of a politician can do is just stop you going mad because the job is you know having a strong person at home to listen to you in your mad life is probably more useful than any I think that's true you need I mean uh, what a politician needs most of all is somebody who will tell them when they are are losing their mind you know like (laughs) somebody who can just close the door and say what the hell are you doing and that might be one of their closest advisors who can spot when they've just you know sort of lost perspective um but actually if if a wife or husband can do that that's an incredibly valuable contribution inevitably they are important advisors if you look at if you look at philip may for example or i think samantha cameron was a big influence on david Mm. um you know i'm i i don't know you'll be more capable of saying what the influence of sheree blair whom i've always regards a very impressive person on uh, tony blair was and sarah brown i think these, these tony you know, so- told me once he could not have got through it i mean all the pain of iraq all the pain of gordon and his supporter, supporters trying to bring him down uh, at a very crucial time it was some years in advance before he went it, it was a very very bad time and he told me i could not have done it without Sheree at my side. She was not only very political, she was very strong. But I remember also after a terrible election campaigning day in Rochdale, Gordon, when he'd left his mic on and he'd had this terrible exchange with Gillian Duffy and 
got into the car and said, you know, what a bigot she was. And it was just, then he found himself in a BBC studio to give an interview without realising that they had the recording. Anyway, at the end of this absolutely horrible day, Sarah was coming from Scotland to meet him. Uh, I think he was in Manchester. And Gordon said, shall I go and get Sarah off the train? I said, go and get her off the train. Go up, put her, throw your arms around each other. Uh, and they came back, and somehow it just lowered the temperature, it diffused it, just by Sarah being there and giving him a big hug. And she looked great, the both of them, and went on. Uh, and it was sort of put behind them pretty much the next day. It left a terrible sort of memory, obviously. Yeah. We're still talking about it. But that was a very, very interesting intervention by a wife who didn't say anything, who didn't make a speech, who just smiled and put her arm around her husband. What, what a great lot of stories. Thank you for that, Bev. Uh, Bev emailing in uh, to How to Win Election. You can get in touch with us. You email us howtowinelection at thetimes.co.uk. And next week on Boxing Day, a very special Christmas episode where we ask, uh, well, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as possible. But for now, for me, Matt Trolley, from Peter Manson, Daniel Finkelstein, and Polly McKenzie, that was How to Win an Election. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.